0: Turn with me there in your Bibles to Nehemiah and chapter 8. Nehemiah and chapter 8. And we'll be looking at uh, some verses in chapter 9 as well. Now, over the past uh, two Sundays, um, we've been looking at some priorities from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, when it comes to returning to uh, our church buildings. Uh, Priorities when we begin now to slowly but surely resume um, normal church services or perhaps a new normal. We've seen a couple of interesting things, haven't we? We've seen how uh, the the necessity, the priority of loving appreciation of one another's views. We've seen how worship must be centred around Christ's cross. We saw this morning about uh, the grace of God that reaches out to sinners and how all are always welcome to come to this, the, the centrality of the sacrifice of Christ in our worship. Now, I trust that we've seen that God has been speaking through people like Ezra, and he speaks through prayers like Nehemiah. He's been speaking through psalms, like uh, songs like the Psalms, and he speaks through nature. We spoke a little bit about that this morning. And he also speaks through events, doesn't he? And so that's what we're going to see this evening, God willing, how the Lord has spoken through the events of Nehemiah 8. And nine, and we'll see a few priorities. First of all, we'll see the priority of the, the word, and then we'll see the priority of the message, and then finally the priority of response to that. So, first of all, then priority of the word in chapter eight, verses one to eight, and chapter nine, verses one to three. But really, it's it's throughout, isn't it? I think you should have noticed that. We should have, it's uh, qu- fairly clear from the reading how overt uh, the word of God. Um, was first and foremost in these chapters. I want to ask you a question. Remember how we've been speaking about how um, our forefathers were exiled into the far-flung corners of the Persian Empire. What would have happened to them? What should have happened? What was due to happen to them? They were in a hopeless position, weren't they? A helpless position. It It was dead end. There was no chance of survival at all. They were destined to die out, or at the very least be diluted into oblivion in the far-flung corners of that empire. Within a generation or two, they would have counted themselves lucky to have featured as a footnote on the pages of history. Far away from the Lord God, they were destined to die without him. But now, but now in Nehemiah 8 and 9, the Lord has rescued them from their exile. He's brought them back to himself. Not only safely back in their land, they've rebuilt now large sections of their temple. They've completed their walls. By now, they are living in their homes, so they're settling into the new normal. What do you think? Have they been rescued? Well, and truly they are rescued. But now what? What difference is this rescue going to make in their lives? Well, you will have heard stories quite like this one before. A man is uh, walking down the street um, in uh, a faraway country a long time ago, and he, he he notices a slave, a slave who's being abused and beaten by his owner, and so he takes pity on him. Pitying this slave, he buys their freedom. He's going about his day shortly after that, and as he's going around, walking around, he notices he's being uh, pursued by this slave. He's being Uh, stalked by him, the slave will not leave him alone. And so he turns around to this slave uh, who he has freed, and he says, go your own way. Why are you following me? You're free. The slave replies to this man, he says, I owe you a debt that I cannot repay. I am so grateful that you have rescued me. All I want to do now is live to listen to you. To live to hear your words and to do as you say. This is the situation that our fathers found themselves in. They're rescued from hopeless lives without the Lord. They know that they're indebted to him. They are are his willing servants. All they want is to listen to him and obey. They're locked in a service of love. Can you identify with that? If you are a Christian this evening, you have been rescued from nothing short of eternal death. Hopeless exile far away from the living God who is the source of all life and goodness and light and peace. The Bible says that God was in Jesus reconciling himself to us. So because the Lord has rescued you, you now live to listen to his words. When Jesus was here, he said these words. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and so on. We remember that parable. He says famously in, the, in John's gospel, he says, if you love me. You will do as I say, you will obey my commands. And so since being rescued, our fathers now have a renewed zeal for their saviour and for sharing his word. And this is where Ezra comes into the story. He's come to satisfy that craving, to give them the word of the saviour. And in these days they read huge swathes of their scriptures. And for many of them it was the first time. It's quite remarkable. I wonder how does that sound to you? In chapter 8, verse 3, in and chapter 8, verse 13, chapter 9 and verse 3, they read the Bible for hours and hours and hours on end. I don't think our commentators are far wrong when they suppose that this was a time like our old revivals, when God came powerfully by his Spirit upon these people and gave them an insatiable appetite for the word of God. They're listening and they're listening and they're listening and they're drinking it in. And as they come across the commands in the Scripture that their Saviour gave them, they were just overcome with the desire to keep those commands. One such command was Deuteronomy 31, which says, Before the Feast of Tabernacles, read the whole law to everybody. Now, as we've seen, they are hungry for the word of God. And so this one was really easy for them to keep. And so it says there in verse one, as one man, they came together. Do you remember we mentioned that um, last week? Uh, The significance of that phrase, as one man, they were completely united. And they come to Ezra and they press upon him and they say, Ezra, bring us the book. Bring us the book, Ezra. Bring us the words of our Saviour. Makes you think, doesn't it, of that lovely verse in Song of Songs, where it says, O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. The people are pressing on Ezra, saying, bring us the words of our Saviour. Now that is music to the ears of a preacher, teacher like Ezra. Absolute music to hear the people crying, give us the word of God, give us the book. I hope you don't mind me saying that's one of the joys of preaching and teaching in this church. Sunday by Sunday, we come, whether, whether virtually or physically, we come to hear what? Not me. Not our pastor nor any visitors like Mr. Love next week, but to hear the words of the Lord Jesus, to hear his word, to hear his voice coming through the word. We come to our church, say, bring us the book, bring us the book, bring us the words of Jesus. He has saved us. So tell us what he says. We want to hear what he says. We want to hear what he has to say. And we want to hear him speak And we want to do as he says. So Ezra now, beaming no doubt, takes out his Bible and begins to read. Who heard? Who was there to hear what was being said? Well, it says there in verse 2, men and women And it also says, all those who could understand. So all those who could understand, apparently not the men, not the women, must be the children. Anyone and everyone who could understand what was being read was there to hear the reading of the word of God. You know, in Nehemiah, the phrase all the people appears nine times. And all nine times appears in chapters 8 to 9. All the people. is a massive emphasis here. All the people came to hear all the word of God. Now, this is a challenge to us in two ways. It's a challenge to preachers and teachers like me to make our words understandable. That's emphasised throughout this little uh, chapter here. You can see that in verse 7 in particular, and verse 13. Uh, where the people go out of their way to make what was being said understandable. I wonder how many church services have you had to sit through thinking, I know they're speaking English, but I can't make head or tail what they're talking about. It's just indecipherable. This is a challenge to preachers and teachers like me uh, to make the preaching of the Word of God understandable to men and women and children. But it's also a challenge to families. It's a challenge to families to expose themselves to regular reading and teaching of the Word of God. Now this point deserves some emphasis, so allow me to do that. While it is true that we come to church to hear the words of the Lord Jesus, how much of the scriptures do we actually hear? James chapter 1 and verse 22 says that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Do you hear that? James presumes that we are hearers of the word of God. James presumes that it's a characteristic of Christians that they hear the word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul is exhorting Timothy and he says, devote yourself to the public reading of the word of God. It's one of the top priorities for the church. Can we esteem the word of God too highly? Can we hear too much of it? You know, for the first 1,500 years after the Lord Jesus, not a single Christian made a habit of what we call a quiet time. Not a single one, because there were no Bibles like we have them today. They were not readily available. There was no printing press. The few that did exist were literally chained up in churches. And so through church history, we see things such as uh, lectionaries. These were um, services where great sections of the Bible were read aloud in public, and people would come to hear a bit like what we're reading about in Nehemiah 8 and 9. Let me put it this way to you. To whom was the Bible given? To church. For whom was the Bible given? It was given for church. And so, since the Word of God is given to the church and for the church, where do you think the Bible should be read? And understood in church. This must be one of our front and foremost priorities, the public reading and teaching and understanding of the Word of God. Before individual study, the Christian is committed to the public reading and hearing and teaching of the Word of God in church. Now don't get me wrong, everywhere And any time is a good place to hear the words of Jesus. Let me be the first one to tell you that. But church is the number one place. And on this day, our fathers gathered together in one assembly and listened to the word of God being read in verse 5 for five to six hours. What happened after five or six hours? Do you think Ezra looked up from his scroll and saw everyone falling asleep? No, look there in verse 6. They were blessing and praising and worshipping the Lord with their hands lifted up in praise and prayer. We'll come to the response uh, in in a moment in a bit more detail, but for now, recall that chain of events. They're saved, they're rescued from exile, far from God, and brought near to him. And when that happens, they're given an appetite for the Saviour's words. They can't get enough. And when they hear those words, they worship him with everything they've got. That's what happens every Sunday in church when the word of God is read and heard by the believers of the Lord Jesus. I wonder, would you have been like that on that day? Could you have listened to the word of God being read for six hours? And had you, would you then respond like this in praise and prayer and uplifted hand and falling on your face? Now I ask you that question because I want to make it clear that I'm not saying, and neither is Nehemiah saying, do this. Make sure you feel like they felt on that day. Make sure that you can copy them or do as they did on that day and respond like this. Nobody can tell you to do that. The emphasis here, what is being said, is this. Highly esteem the words of Christ. Love and cherish the word of God. But most of all, listen to it. However small that appetite is, Foster it, feed it, bring it to the Saviour in prayer, pray about it, come to Him with it and say, Look how small my appetite is, swell it, please, increase it. Give me your word, bring me the words of the Saviour. Okay, so that's the priority of the words, but now we're going to look a bit more closely at the priority of the message. And this is from chapter 8, verse 13, all the way to the end of chapter nine. Our fathers craved the word of God, and so they listened to it, devouring every sentence, drinking it all in. And anything that didn't make immediate sense was clarified for them and taught to them. It must have been a fantastic day. But what did they find in it? What exactly did they hear? Which books did Ezra read? Was it just Moses' books, Genesis, all the way through for the first five, was was it Psalms? Did he read read the history up until that point? Maybe the prophets? We're not entirely certain about the sum of what Ezra read, but I tell you what we do know, and that's the gist. And we know what really impacted them. Look there with me at chapter 9 a bit more closely. If you look there at verse 6, this is part of the response of the people now in a prayer to the Lord God. In verse 6, we see that they talk about creation. And then they start to talk about Abraham in verse 7. And then in verses 9 to 15, if you look there, you see references to the Exodus and to the law of God given on Sinai. They're reading through the Pentateuch, aren't they? They're hearing their own heritage. And they're calling it, my story. They're reading what happened to their forefathers and saying, that's my story. This is how God has always dealt with us. Isn't that how we read our Bibles too? Personally, I will never forget my father preaching through the book of Romans. Coming to chapter 4, explaining how we are the descendants of Abraham, They are our forefathers. We read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and we say, that's my story too. And in there, we've got our forefathers reading about their forefathers saying, that's my story. This is how God deals with his people through all ages. And then in verses 16 to 21, we read about their sins. And the Lord's mercy. And that cycle repeats itself all the way through chapter 9. They're reading their history and they say, they sinned, the Lord had mercy on them, and that's my story. They sinned again, and the Lord had mercy on them again, and that's my story. Then they sinned again, and the Lord had mercy on them again. And that's my story. All the way down to verse 30, and their own exile, where they say, We sinned, and the Lord had mercy on us. That's our story. Our forefathers read their Bibles and heard their own story of salvation just like we're doing today, just like we did this morning. Here's their conclusion. It's uh, reiterated a few times in chapter 9, of this, and there's some absolutely wonderful verses. In verse uh, 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. And then in verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet When they returned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And then in verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. You are a gracious and a merciful God. Some of you will know this wonderful quote from John Newton. He made the same sentiments and he said, I am a great sinner, but in Christ I have a great saviour. This is the story of Jesus' people down through the ages. We are great sinners, far from a holy God, doomed to die, doomed to be nothing more than a footnote on the pages of history. Doomed to die under the justice of God against our sins. Yet, in Jesus Christ, the same God is our great Saviour. We are rescued. We are given an appetite for the word of God. We come to the church chanting, bring us the book. Bring us the words of Jesus. When we do that... When we come to church chanting, bring us the book, bring us the word. What do we want to hear? Do we want our ears tickled? Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me how to be rich. Tell me how to be happy. Give me my niche theological conviction. Give me purpose in life. Tell me God's plan for me. Tell me the meaning of life. Give me, uh, tell me that I'm a better Christian than those Christians who aren't as reformed as me. Tell me how bad the world is getting and how good I am for still being in church. Tell me how bad it is out there. No. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly, that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me none of that rubbish. Tell me that I'm a sinner. And tell me that I need Jesus. That is the story of the Bible. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great saviour. Our forefathers loved to listen to that story for hours and hours and hours. Is that your story? When you read the Bible and it tells you that you are a sinner, but that in Christ, God, who was your judge, is now your saviour, do you say, that's my story? Let me ask you this question, uh, put it in a different way. Why do you read your Bible? Do you read your Bible to learn and relearn about Jesus? Or do you read your Bible to relive, to relive the salvation that you have in him over and over and over again? This brings us nicely to the priority of response in chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. Our rescued fathers, now they've craved the word. They find the story of their own salvation in Christ in the word. And what is their response? We mentioned worship, but let's get a bit more specific when we say that they had a month-long emotional roller coaster, Dipping to sorrow and rising to joy. That much is clear just from reading chapter 8, but allow me to fill in the gaps and put it all next to each other for you. On day 1 of this month, that's verse 1, it's the Sabbath day. A day of rest, a day of rejoicing, a day of anticipating the coming of the Saviour who will win for them eternal rest. Then on days 1 and 2, verse 9, they read the word of God and they mourn sin. They look around and mourn its consequences on them and their city and their families. They're down in the dumps. And then in verse 10, the leaders tell them that instead of being low, they should rejoice. To be pleased and joyful in the rescue of the Saviour and the words of the Saviour. So they're up again. On the 10th day of the month was the Day of Atonement. We read about that in Leviticus 23, which this chapter is all about really. And in the Day of Atonement, they afflict themselves with more sorrow for sin, the Bible says. And so they're down again. On days 15 to 22 was the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you see there in verse 17, the place is bursting with excitement and with joy as they remember when Jesus led them through the wilderness and saved them in the past, anticipating how he'll do so in the future. And so they're up here again. Probably exhausted, they have a day off. And then on day 24, they are once again confessing and mourning their sin in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. How do we explain such lability? All this up and down, all these mood swings, what is going on? Well, what's happening is this. When they read the word of God, and they've made that their priority, they're reading about their own sin and their own saviour. On one hand, they want to mourn their sin. And on the other, they can't but help rejoicing in Christ, their Saviour. That pair which we found a moment ago, I am a sinner, but Christ is my Saviour, motivates these responses in Jesus' people. They found it to be true. They can't help but feel both. So sad about sin and so happy about Christ, their Saviour. Do you ever feel like that? Paul the Apostle did. Let me read you these famous words. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's all the way down here, mourning his sin. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, I will be delivered from this body of death. And he's straight back up again. It's the Christian's lot, you know, to be constantly afflicted. Hating the sin which is in us. Hating the sin which grieves Jesus, our Saviour. And yet, we are alike constantly relieved of that affliction, as we remember the salvation and rescue that we have in Jesus, our Saviour. I trust and hope that this is some peace to those of us who feel more one than the other. Some of us really afflict ourselves, don't we, for sin all the time. We're always down here. And that's, that's okay to have those feelings. And some of us are constantly up here, barely ever afflicted, only ever just joyous in the Lord. And that's okay to feel like that. Both of these feelings are present in the Christian life. But can you be constantly happy and constantly sad at the same time? Once again, I'd like to impress upon you the importance that the priority in these chapters is not feeling like they felt. I'm not saying feel like this. Make sure that your emotions are correct. Make sure you're both happy and sad at the same time. What I'm saying is esteem the words of Christ so highly. Let that be the priority of Heath Church. The word of God preached constantly and faithfully. The message of salvation that is in it. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That though we are great sinners, in him we have a great saviour. And the importance of that response to it. Mourning sin, hating it. And loving Christ and rejoicing. In him. So take your Bibles, read them, listen to them. Get more of it in you. Allow it to alter, to change, to reform, to mature your thinking and your feeling. Read about your sin, which will kill you. Read about your Savior Jesus, who will give you everlasting life. When the Christians live like this, we spend our whole lives grieving in sin and rejoicing in Jesus until he comes back. And when he comes back to take us home, we will find in ourselves an unstoppable, insatiable appetite for him and for his word because he has finally and fully rescued us. And we will be constantly satisfied in hearing his voice, constantly in communication with him. And it will be nothing but bliss and joy and satisfaction of our insatiable appetite for his word. It will be only joy and no more sorrow for sin, for the former things will have passed away. I'm going to read a few words from the book of Colossians and then I'll pray briefly and then we will close with our last song. Colossians 3 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let these be the priorities of our church as we begin to regather uh, in the coming weeks. Let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your words to us. We thank you, Father, for the living and eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ, your precious and most beloved Son. We thank you that you have given to us the words of Christ and you have given with them himself that we are the most privileged and blessed people in all the world to own the Saviour and to hear his words. We thank you that we also have the mind of Christ in us, which allows us to understand and to plumb these depths. Please give us the Holy Spirit, we pray, and fill us with Him, that we should have an appetite for the words of the Saviour and for His glory that would outshine and overshadow everything else in our lives, that we should be given over to this wonderful means of grace, hearing the Word of God. We pray that you should protect the pulpit of our church, that our church would be a bastion of the Word of God and the preaching of the gospel for many, many years. Lord, you know how quickly. Our hearts turn, how fickle the hearts of your people are. And yet, Father, in Christ, we have such a great saviour, such a paraclete who comes alongside and hems us in with his loving words. Oh, Lord, enamor us by his words, we pray that we should ever fear sinning against him. We pray, Lord, that you should bring uh, by your word our thoughts and our emotions and our motives and our wills, everything into line with your perfect and ineffable will. Thank you, Father, for the blessings of this day, for your word, for your praise and your prayer. We ask you, Lord, to be with us now and our families, that we should all be blessed together with thoughts and words and songs about our Saviour, who is all in all to us. Amen. We're going to sing together now our last song together, number 484 in our hymn books. Of course, it's Tell Me the Old, Old Story. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.